welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, good morning, both to you who are here and you who are online. I have to say it feels rather odd to be getting up at this time. Normally, I'm the one going to have a nice seat and let somebody else do the talking. Um, For those of you who don't know me, and I've seen quite a few faces I don't recognize, so there are a few of you, uh, my name is Peter Watts. And uh, almost five years ago now, I was invited to be part of the planning group that helped form New Life Fellowship today. And uh, I love what God has created here. A safe place to be who you are without the need of a mask. Or even the requirement to remove your mask if you come here. A community of grace where we can, we can share the worst days and be loved all the more for it. I'm also the executive director of Crossways to Life. And, uh, and that still feels really weird to say. I'd much rather somebody else take that job, but uh, God is, has other ideas. And uh, for those who aren't aware what Crossways Life is, we're a, a, a biblical counseling center focusing on Christ-centered solutions. One of the special things I get to do in my new role at Crossways is share with local churches the truth of the exchange life. To teach what it means to choose Christ in us instead of the flesh and what that looks like in our daily lives. Or more simply put, how to allow Christ in us to live his life through us. Something we get to talk about each and every week here at New Life. This morning, I'll be sharing what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. There are many ways. Somebody got the spirit in them right now? I don't know. (laughs) There we go. Um, There are many ways of being led by the Holy Spirit, and some of those include what we just did, worship. It could be here in in church, experiencing worship, hearing a word for the first time, like a billion thousand times. I don't know how that works, but anyways, like just how much he loves us. But for me, worship, it can happen just listening to a worship song. and, And even though I've heard that song a billion times before, hearing words for the first time and them resonating with me and hearing the Spirit speak to me. It can be experiencing peace. In in those moments, you wouldn't normally have peace. A a stressful moment at work um, or dealing with conflict or standing in front of a church. It could be comfort. Maybe you've sensed the Holy Spirit give you a big spiritual hug 
when you really, really needed it. Or it could be in trauma. It could be uh, giving you the ability to get through an event that anybody else would look at and go, how did you make it through that? That God, even in those moments, the spirit can actually erase it and allow for you to deal with it at a later time when he can work with you. It can be joy. It could be seeing a flower um, and just experiencing God in that flower. Last week, I was out for a run with a friend of mine, and he said, anytime I see a deer on my run, I know God's speaking to me. We saw a deer. And it was wild. This morning, we heard in the very first song, freedom. There's a spirit of freedom that he wants to give us as well. And then there's conviction. This might be one of the most common times we sense the Holy Spirit. The gentle and sometimes not so gentle reminder that this is not who we are, but the encouragement to ask ourselves why. Why we chose to do what we did, what we did and go a little bit deeper. This is where I want to spend our time today. This is when the Holy Spirit is calling us to do something that is outside of our comfort zone, or perhaps it's even something we don't even agree with. Things we don't want to do, but we know God is directing us, directing us there. Let's start with some prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. Father, I need your spirit to just speak through me right now. I need your spirit to... to, uh, to speak into each and every person who's listening to this message right now, that they would just, your spirit would clear our minds and just allow us to hear what it is that you want to speak to each and every one of us individually. Take away my nervousness, take away the cloud. Father, I just pray for you to speak clearly this morning. Amen. As I was praying about this and and thinking about what story, what character in the Bible would be a a great example of experiencing that conviction. And immediately God gave me this odd story. I was kind of surprised by until I spent some time in it. The odd story about Ananias when he met Saul. Let's if you have your Bible... Uh, feel free to turn around, turn to it. We're going to go to Acts 9, and we're going to read verses 10 through 12. I believe we're going to have it up on the screen as well. But Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. What do we know about Ananias? He's, he's a disciple, which at its very basic definition, means someone who learns from Jesus and follows him. That's really all we know about this guy. 
How about Saul of Tarsus? Well, we, we have quite a bit more information about him. One author describes Saul this way. Before encountering the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, Saul was well known, in charge, and very much in control of his world. He was clearly the authority and had little patience for others who would upstage his grandiose character. Yet this man, who presumed to be religious and upright, was little more than a narcissistic fool that craved attention, sought power, and lived in a world of hateful judgment. Not exactly something you want to put on your resume. What else do we know? In Acts 8, we see a little bit of a picture of him. He ravaged the church of Jesus Christ and approved of the stoning of Stephen. He was entering homes to seek out any followers of the way and wanting to bring them forward for prosecution. And he had approval from the Jews for all of his actions. In 1 Timothy, we see by his own words, he was the greatest sinner of all time. So we aren't surprised that Ananias is not exactly excited about this idea. We continue the story, verses 13 and 14. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Does Ananias have a right to be nervous? Does he, does he fear for his life? Yes. Is he worried about what might happen to the church? Is he, uncom is he uncomfortable with the request that God is making of him? Does he really want to do what God is asking him? I don't think so. And yet he does. Why is it so important that Ananias, why is it so important for Ananias to be asked? Because I think there's an unspoken question being asked here as well. From, from the Lord, Ananias, will you trust me? We've, we've all been called to do things outside of our comfort zone. He doesn't need us to do those things. And yet he desires that of us, which is why we sense his spirit. He doesn't, standing here in front of you, even though you are my church. This is outside of my comfort zone. He doesn't need me to do it. And yet I'm here. Why? Well, you know, the best way for you to get to know me is to tell you about another embarrassing story, as if you don't have enough about me. Um, so I'm about to share an embarrassing story. When, <laughs> who was that? <laughs> All right. Uh, when our youngest son was, was 15, so about 10, 10 years ago, he really got into football. I mean, summer football, and he was all in. 
he was, you know, learning all the rules, studying the plays, doing all the exercise, excited, first one to get in the car to go to the field for practice, encouraging the other players like he was all in. Uh, Anita and I, my wife and I, we were never really, well, we'd never really done the hockey thing. I know many of you here have done the hockey thing. We weren't that type of family. But his enthusiasm got us excited. We were going to all the practices and we were learning all about the games and, uh, and all the rules. Even Anita, you can ask her. She knows all the rules now. So we were excited to go all to all the games. On this one particular Sunday afternoon, we brought some friends from church who were excited to know more about football, and they had a son who was interested in it. So they came with us, and uh, we were there. And it was a you know, beautiful fall uh, Sunday afternoon. Now, if you haven't been to a football game, let me just break it down a little bit for you. Like, imagine we're on one side of the field on this side, and the back side is the other side. Well, all the players on the other side, and right down the middle here would be the middle of the field, and one side, usually on the right, would be the home team. The other side would be the visitor team. And all the fans would align themselves with that same sort of idea. So this side would be the home team, and that side would be the visitor team. This particular side, that's the side you didn't want to be on, just so you know. Sorry, Cheryl. Um, so, so, so you have this field set up. And, and there were a couple of things that, you know, let's say they were unwritten rules. Things everybody knew, you just sort of respected. There were certain boundaries you didn't cross. First off, you kind of stayed to your own side, all right? If you want to cheer, you cheer on your side of the field. If you want to walk down the field, you can walk, but, you know, keep your praises for your team to sort of a dull roar because, you know, this is the visitor side. You cheer for the visitors on this side. The other thing was had to do, it was part safety, but it had to do with the fact of we all had lawn chairs and we all wanted to see the full field, right? So, of course, we'd try to be right up to the edge of the field if this is the edge of the field. But that's not so safe because the other thing is you had referees and referees are walking up and down the field and they're following the game and they need that one yard. The other thing is you want that one yard because here's the thing about testosterone filled little boys. They don't stop at the edge. So you need that extra buffer to get out of the way if the play continued right through and it happens. So we had this big line. And so, you know, you respect that's sort of like the no walk zone. You're not allowed to walk in that zone. The game in question on this particular Sunday, it was a playoff game. Our team had been doing really well. I mean, they were expected to go all the way to the final game. It's an early playoff game. So we're expecting this team that we're playing, they haven't done so well. This is going to be a cakewalk. It wasn't. And, uh, and on the other side of the team, they had this guy. He was like their main cheerleader. He... I was trying to pick somebody in this, in this congregation that kind of equates the same height. There is nobody as tall as this guy. I mean, Barry would be kind of the closest or Niven. Like, 
but they had another six inches on them plus another 150 or 200 pounds. I mean, they're big. I'm going to call him Mr. Goliath. And he was, he was decked out in all of the gear, all the gear of the other team. I mean, he looked like one of the coaches that should be on the other side of the field. He's not allowed to be here. This is for fans. And he's running up and down the field. He's yelling out plays at the players. He knows all of them by name. He's encouraging them to get in and finish the tackle, do whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing. He is loud. He's annoying. He's distracting. He's not respecting the unwritten rules. He's also walking in that one yard, one yard buffer. He's literally walking in front of us as the play is going down the field. Like he's, he's blocking our field of vision and yelling on top of that. Like we have to yell even louder than him if we want to try to get over him. That's not working because he's, he's loud. Third quarter comes along. Game is still really, really close. And it plays on our side of the field. So, you know, Mr. Goliath is close by. And uh, one of their players does a flagrant foul, the type of foul that can hurt somebody, right? And so I'm sitting on my chair. And I hear somebody yell, hey, is that how you guys coach your kids to hurt other kids? Everybody turns to look at the person that said it. It was me. <laughs> and I'm in shock. Those words just came out of my mouth. There was no thought. It just happened, right? And I, I'm, like, I have no idea what's going on. There's a ton of, of stuff happening. Mr. Goliath comes directly at me. He is somewhere right there. I don't hear what he's saying because I am I'm in this shock zone. How did I how did those words come out of me? Nobody is around me, by the way. All the chairs have moved out as, as if the play, <laughs> as if the play was gonna come. Now, fortunately, there were a few other parents that came in, recognized the danger that I was in. They encouraged Mr. Goliath to go back to his side of the field and things calm down. Part of me felt vindicated. He was doing what he wasn't supposed to be doing. He's supposed to respect our side. He, he's not supposed to cheer over us. He's not supposed to block our line of vision. He's, he's supposed to be over there. But the majority of me was struggling with the fact that I had said these words. They had come out of my mouth. The Holy Spirit was heavy on me. Jesus, during, his, during the Last Supper, he says that the Holy Spirit is coming that is better than him. Why is that? Because we all have, we will all have that helper. Not just Jesus in one place at one time, 
the Holy Spirit in each of us all the time, each of us who are believers. In John 16, verses 7 to 11, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The word convict, or I'm going to try my Greek here at the best, allegro. I have no idea if that was close, but allegro, it sounds cool. It means to convince, that convince you that you are wrong. Other similar words include refute, expose, admonish. Another description had it as to show someone that they have done something wrong and summoned them to repent. When it comes to you and I, believers of Jesus Christ, or as, as Paul would say, the saints of New Life Fellowship, the Holy Spirit is convincing us of our behavior issues and equally, and equally convincing us of our righteousness. This behavior does not change who you are. Remember, because of the cross, God has made us whole and he has perfected us spiritually for all time. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says this really clearly, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, perfected, past tense, done, nothing else to do. This is referring to our spiritual identity. We are his children. He is a spiritual being. And having been made in his image, in his image, we are all spiritual beings. Did you catch that? You aren't a human being. You are a spiritual being who is having a human experience right now. It also says that we are being sanctified. What does that mean? My actions in my human experience are still not perfect. I still make poor choices. I still look for validation from people other than God. I still desire to look good, sound smart, and have people like me. I will say things that are not loving and think things that are not loving. Let's, let's be clear here. Even if I had thought those things about Mr. Goliath, that was not loving. So in effect, the Holy Spirit is convincing, the Holy Spirit is convincing or convicting me that I'm still trusting myself, which equates to self-reliance or trusting my flesh more than I'm trusting him. So here I am, I'm sitting on this chair, the game continues on, 
For the most part, the fans have all returned their focus to the game. There is a game actually happening still. Yet, my focus is internal. Yes, I'm already forgiven by God. He does not need me to confess my sin. My sins have been forgiven. But I feel bad. I did not show grace. My statement was hurtful. I need to apologize to Mr. Goliath, but I don't want to. Parts of me are yelling, yeah, but he deserved it. But that wasn't the Holy Spirit, and that voice was starting to take a back seat. I was really uncomfortable with this idea of apologizing. Another question that kept coming to my mind was, do I really need to do this? Do I really need to go and apologize? I'm never going to see him again. Why do I need to go and apologize? Let's stop here for a minute. Does God really need us to do anything? For example, do we seriously believe that if Ananias had said no to God, if he had said, no, I'm not going to go see Saul, right? That we wouldn't have all the writings of Paul today? That the church that we know today would not exist and we might not even have the New Testament? Was God's plan for all of his children contingent on the response of one man, one human? One broken man. The reality is that Ananias had a very insignificant role in God's plan for Paul. The early church and the church that we know today. And yet, he was given that option. He was given that option to be part of God's plan and played a significant part by his willingness to trust God. We were all given that option. So does God need us to do anything? Does he need us to share his gospel? Does, does he need us to lead people to Jesus? Does he need us to perform miracles? Does he need us to demonstrate his love through us? No, but we get to. As part of his family, we get to participate in his work. And let's be clear, it is his work. It's it's. Not the work of Ananias or Paul the Apostle or Peter from Crossways or Craig from New Life Fellowship or any one of you. It's the work of Jesus Christ. There's one story in the Bible that is a perfect example of how he doesn't need us and yet desires us to be part of his plan. We've all heard this story before. We, we may have heard it as a child. We may have read it. We've heard it in Sunday school. Um, it's the story of Jonah. Jonah is one of, the, one of the 12 minor prophets, and the book, the book of Jonah, opens up with God telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and warn them of God's unhappiness with them. This seems like a reasonable request, because that's what prophets do. That's his job. And yet, 
Jonah doesn't think the Ninevites deserve forgiveness. He doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. He jumps on a ship to go completely the opposite way. He disagrees with what God has called him to do. Have you ever disagreed with God? Can you relate to what Jonah is saying? Is there something where you felt God calling you to do something and you chose to go the other direction? How did that work out for you? While Jonah is sleeping away comfortably in the bowels of the ship, he has no problems with his choice. He's sleeping in the bowels of the ship and a storm arises. And the sailors, they recognize that this is no normal storm that the sea is not happy with them. And they are praying to their own gods, believing that their own gods can save them. Nothing's happening. And they finally recognize that this is the God of someone else. And that that God has caused the storm. And that God is the God of Jonah. God reveals to the sailors that it is Jonah that is causing God's wrath on them. God, Jonah invites them to throw, throw him overboard. Just throw me overboard. It's okay. We'll solve it. Just throw me overboard. I will state this fact in case you weren't aware. Jewish moms did not take their boys to the YMJA. Young Men's Jewish Association, if you didn't get the reference, right? For swimming lessons. And, and when Jonah was just a wee lad, no, they, they didn't know how to swim. That was not what they did. Another fact, another fun fact, these ships didn't have life preservers. If the ship went down, you went down. You were done. So really when Jonah's saying, throw me overboard, he's saying, I'd rather die. I'd rather die then go and warn the Ninevites. That's a pretty big statement right there. The sailors really struggle with this decision, knowing this would be certain death for Jonah, but eventually they do throw him overboard. But God, God knows every step that Jonah has in mind. And he takes and he provides a fish to swallow, to swallow him whole for three days and three nights. Now, here's another fun fact. You may have seen little pictures and diagrams. Maybe it was like, um, I forget, the VeggieTales, veg whatever sort of rendition. I remember, like, they showed he's sitting there in the whale, and he's got a little campfire cooking hot dogs and Smoke is coming out of the blowhole. That's not what it was. He was in the stomach. And the stomach is only as big as whatever's in there. So what is he feeling? He's feeling, he's feeling pressure, intense pressure all around him. Uncomfortable pressure from all sides. Doesn't the Holy Spirit do the same thing to us? when he wants to get us, get our attention. 
After a prayer from Jonah, God commands the fish to spit Jonah up on dry land and commands Jonah again to go to Nineveh. I believe there is an unspoken question here as well. Jonah, will you trust me? Will you trust me and do what I ask? Jonah relinquishes and agrees to go. But however, Jonah really didn't want to do it. He does the absolute bare minimum. He hasn't surrendered his thoughts on this matter and still doesn't like what God desires of him. He has surrendered to God's power, but not to God's will. Scripture says that Nineveh is a three-day journey to walk through the city. It's one of the biggest cities in the Old Testament. Some estimates are 140,000. I'm not sure if that's just the men or if that's everyone, but it's a big city. You can probably say it's roughly the size of Kitchener-Waterloo region. And Jonah does that in one day. More fun facts. The average person walks roughly three to four kilometers per hour. On an eight-hour walk with reasonable roads and pathways, which we can't say is the case for, for, for Nineveh, um, we can safely say that 24 kilometers is probably the max they can do in one day, somebody walking. So over three days, we can assume that it's roughly 72 kilometers of walking. Now, most of you know I, I run. I don't like running, but I have to run. And uh, it's true. I don't like to run. But um, when I do run, I can pretty easily run five kilometers in 30 minutes. And for many people, they would say that's pretty good. And it, it's not bad. I, it's good. Um, with some effort, I can do 10 kilometers in one hour. With a really, really big effort, I can do 20 kilometers in two hours. But any more, and you're going to catch me walking. So to try to do all 72 kilometers in one day, I, I can't even imagine that. And here's another thing. Jonah wasn't a runner. He was a preacher. And what are preachers really good at? taking 45 minutes to tell you what it takes to, in five minutes. <laughs> right, Pastor Ross? Ain't wrong. Ain't wrong. Ain't wrong, right? Not that we see that every week, right? Um, he should have been preaching for weeks instead of taking one day. It should have been a long walk. So trying to preach while crossing the city in that amount of time is evidence that Jonah is expecting that his message will not be heard and that Nineveh will not repent. But they do. And God forgives the people of Nineveh. Did God really need Jonah to share the warning with the Ninevites? Jonah wasn't interested in them being saved. He was interested in his own plans not God's plans. This experience is, was as much for Jonah as it was for the Ninevites. One of the best one-liners that God has, in my opinion, in the Bible is in chapter 4. 4-2, where God says to, to Jonah, and the Lord said, 
Do you do well to be angry? How's that, how's that working out for you? I think Paul the Apostle maybe would have been a little bit more direct. Do you not know that this anger that you are carrying is causing you death? God wants to show Jonah that his anger is controlling him. To show him God provides a plant uh, to give him rest and shade from the heat of the day. And Jonah is happy. And then God takes it away. And he's angry again. God's convicting him of his anger. This is one of the very few stories of the Bible where we see such a detailed story or detailed account of someone who doesn't surrender to God, who doesn't turn away from themselves and turn to God. Jonah never truly relinquishes his control. And really, that's what God is doing when he's He is convicting us. He is showing us that we are trusting ourselves and not him. We are trusting our flesh, not the spirit that is within us. At Crossways to Life, we meet primarily with Christians. Most of our clients would say they've been a Christian for a long time. And yet they are struggling. What brings them to Crossways is some life event that cause them to seek help and discernment. Life issues such as anxiety or depression, pornography, marital issues of communication or adultery or problems with intimacy or parenting or finances, anger issues, substance abuse issues, bitterness. These are all symptoms of the real problem. The beliefs about ourselves are the root of the problem. And God also wants to convict us of our righteousness. I'll often start with with a client with this one verse, John 10.10. I learned that from my good friend Sue over here. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We've all heard this, this verse. I think it's probably one of the most referenced verses without actually being referenced because we talk about having that abundant life. And that's what we're talking about. And yet we fail to pay heed to the warning that Jesus is giving us. The warning that, that points us to the thief, the thief, the thief being multiple entities. Paul does a great job of describing that in Ephesians. Ross did a great job many years ago now when we were going through Ephesians. And he broke down Ephesians 2, 1, verse 3. And there we see the thief is made up of Satan, the world, and probably enemy number one, the flesh. Because the flesh is with us all the time. The flesh is our key enemy. We all have the flesh. We have all inherited from our ancestor, Adam, the flesh as a result of the fall. And we were born with it. All Christians experience the attack of the thief, causing them to sense that their joy is being stolen, that their hope is being killed, that their life is being destroyed but they are Christians. They love Jesus. 
Why aren't they experiencing the promise of the abundant life? Romans 8.6 nails it. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Focusing on things of the flesh brings death. Focusing on the flesh continues to feed into the beliefs that we are unworthy, insignificant, unacceptable, not good enough, insecure, and heaping on shame. This is why so many Christians do not experience that promise of abundant life. We've all read the Bible. We've all been going to church and hearing messages about Christ. Many of us have been in small groups studying the Bible and encouraging one another. If we know these things, why do we not experience the abundant life? At Crossways, we teach there are three primary reasons people don't experience those, the abundant life. One, they have never heard it. They, that they have died with Jesus and do not fully understand the power of the cross. Two, they have heard it, but they don't believe it. And three, they have heard it, they believe it, but they haven't surrendered what they are looking for to get life. Let's take a few minutes to unpack these, these statements. First one, they have never heard that they have died with Christ. I grew up going to church all my life. In my first church, this was not something that was ever discussed. I mean, ever. This was my first 30 years of my life. I became a born-again believer at age 30. And while I remember reading and studying Galatians and Ephesians and Romans and numerous other scriptures that point to this truth, it was never revealed to me. I believe most Christians fall in this camp. When I ask a client to tell me what happened on the cross, I'm ecstatic when someone tells me that's where my old self died. This is the good news of, of Easter. Galatians 2.20, I know you all know this. I have been crucified. I don't like to read it that way anymore. I like to personalize scripture. So I've now got Peter's version. Peter has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer Peter who lives, but Christ who lives in Peter. And the life Peter now lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in a son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. And this death has enabled me to be in Christ. In the family of Christ, I am a co-heir of Christ. I am a saint. I am righteous. I am holy. But I won't always behave like I'm a saint. And that leads to number two. They have heard it, but they don't believe it. There are many reasons why someone may not believe it. Some common reasons are, it sounds too easy. It's too good to be true. There is nothing for me to do, and I still have to earn it. I don't see any evidence of it. 
Why hasn't everything changed? But one of the biggest reasons comes down to head knowledge versus heart knowledge. One of my favorite speakers, John Lynch, he has this expression, truth, trusted, transforms. Our truth comes from the Bible. When I'm speaking to a client and we've uncovered for the first time who they really are, who they truly are, that they are a child of God, part of the kingdom, eternally saved, seated at the right hand of God, that they can get pretty overwhelmed. In their own words, it can be mind-blowing. However, the next time I see them, the truth that they've discovered has not changed their lives. In some cases, I have to remind them, remind them of what happened on the cross. The thief has come to taint their newfound knowledge with doubt. Truth is useless if it isn't trusted. Trusting it means that I take a stand on it. I plant my flag and question my other beliefs. As uncomfortable as it seems, I allow this to seep into my heart and replace the lies I've believed for so long. And when we see the trusting take place, watch out. This is where the transformation takes place. These are the people you've met, and you know something is different about them, but you can't quite put a finger on it. They live and breathe Jesus. They have a peace and happiness that just doesn't match with their physical reality, or more specifically, how the world would perceive their situation. The third reason people don't experience the abundant life is they have heard it, they believe it, but they haven't surrendered what they are looking to get uh, to get life out of, before they get life. This is often the big stumbling block. The rich man in, described in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 is his story. He has heard about Jesus. He believes in Jesus, but he can't give up his personal idol, money. And this is what the flesh uses to keep us choosing the flesh over the spirit. And this brings us back to the football field. I'm sitting on this chair, and I feel the Holy Spirit. He wants me to apologize. And I don't want to apologize. I was... I was way out of the line with my comment. I did not show love or grace to Mr. Goliath, but the flesh was pushing its own agenda, trying for me to see it as more important than apologizing. And that agenda for me that day was pride. How could I get up in front of everyone, including my friends, my Christian friends from church, and walk the 20 yards over to him. Everyone would know what I'm doing. They'd all be staring. What's Peter doing? They might even think I'm weak. Why are you going to apologize? They might even stop talking to me. 
I will be further humiliated because people will remember what I've done. But the Holy Spirit is not, not only convinces, convinces us of our wrongs, but it also encourages us, gives us strength when we don't think that we have strength, reminds us that we are righteous and loved and good enough. I needed to surrender my pride in that moment. Pride was going to prevent me from experiencing the abundant life. Ananias surrendered his right to give up, right to his own personal safety, knowing that Saul was persecuting Christ followers, of which he was one. He also surrendered his judgment of Saul and released that to God. As a result, he is forever remembered as the one who led Saul to becoming a Christian, hearing, healing him of his blindness, and then baptizing Paul. On the other hand, Jonah refused to surrender his bitterness towards the Ninevites. He never experienced God's joy for their repentance. I was really uncomfortable about the idea of apologizing to Mr. Goliath, and yet comfortable that this is what God wanted me to do. Ever since that day, I've called this feeling being, this, this feeling being comfortably uncomfortable. God had a spoke, unspoken question for me that day. Will you trust me? So I stood up and I approached Mr. Goliath. And as I approach, I can see he is talking to a woman and he has what looks like cast in stone permanent scowl on his face. And as I approach, the woman sees me, she boots it away. I'm not liking my chances too much. And uh, I, I approach, I say, do you mind if, if, we, if we talk? He's, I don't think he answered. <laughs> and and I, didn't, I didn't beat around the bush. I immediately came out and said, look, I'm really sorry for what I said. I don't believe you guys coach your kids to hurt others. It was wrong of me. He changed immediately. He went, he went from the scowling Mr. Goliath to the friendly giant, if any of you remember that, right? Within a few minutes, we switched to talking about the game, how good it was, how, how proud he was of his kids who weren't expected to do well, and how, you know, this was a really good battle from both sides, and... Uh, and then unprovoked, he turns around and, and he says, you know, I, I, I can get a little over-enthusiastic and I, I'm really sorry about that. Shortly after that, he grabs me. <laughs> around the shoulders, just so you know. <laughs> and I think I must have looked shocked again in that moment because then he apologizes for that too. But we've... It's like we've just become best friends. He really is a nice guy. God didn't need me to apologize, but he wanted me to. God knew, 
God knew I was going to get upset at that moment. He allowed it so that his sanctification work could continue in me. In the 10 years since that happened, um, God has revealed so much to me from this event. I was applying law to the friendly giant through those unwritten rules instead of giving him grace. And that I felt disrespected by him during the game, and that was what triggered my anger and outburst. And my sanctification continues. So to wrap up, I've got some questions for you. Are you hearing from the Holy Spirit? Are you feeling like you're in the belly of the whale? What is he asking you to surrender? God has this question for you today. Will you trust me? Will you relinquish control? Will you say no to your flesh? Will you lay it down and follow me? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your overwhelming love for us. And we have been told so many times that you are an angry God. And yet, when we really read scripture, it's all signs of how much you truly love us. That you aren't out to condemn us. That you are out to parent us the same way that we parent our kids in love, that you desire the best for us, that you convict us to convince us that our behavior does not match who we actually are. Perfect, holy saints of the risen God. Father, for those who are feeling like they're in the belly right now, Father, I just pray for them to to release to you what it is that needs to be released. If they need to speak to one of the elders here, Father, that they would they would take that step of courage. Just speak to one of the one of those elders and just uh, and talk it out. Allow them to be reminded by fellow believers, by fellow saints, who they truly are and that they are loved. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.